Today's TripCast is presented by Earth Day ATX 2018, which is now on April 29th. Same time and place, 12 to 7 p.m. at Houston Tillotson University. An interactive and immersive family experience with an opportunity for everyone to find your power. Learn more at earthdayaustin.com. And by TASBO, as the trusted resource for school finance and operations, the Texas Association of School Business Officials, TASBO, has been supporting public education in Texas since 1946. For more information, go to tasbo.org. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, oh, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Hello, everybody. This is John Schwartz, a reporter at the New York Times, born and raised in Galveston, Texas. When I was a kid, there was no such thing as a trip cast. Now there is one, which is one way in which Texas is getting better. Here's your host. Thank you. This is Ross Ramsey here on Wednesday, April 25th with your Texas Tribune Tripcast, our weekly podcast about the biggest stories in Texas politics. I'm joined this week by Tribune CEO Evan Smith. Hey. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And Alex Samuels, a reporter here who will join us in a moment. We're also joined for this first segment by Democratic congressional candidate Christine Edie Mann. We'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so send them our way. So you're facing MJ Hager in the May 22nd runoff election for the chance to go head to head with Republican Congressman John Carter. Why you and not her? I think there's a, a number of reasons. Um, I have been working and training in science for 30 years, so I can bring that scientific knowledge into the halls of Congress. I have worked to um, advocate for patients for 20 years, and I want to take that same level of advocacy. I can do much more for them and for the constituents of the district in Congress than I can sitting in the room. And then I do have polling data that shows that I am ahead in a head-to-head contest with John Carter by two points. So um, Who did I, that poll? I, did, I, I saw that poll on your website. Who, who polled for you? That was Gravis Marketing. Gravis Marketing. And so this, and the sample replicated the likely electorate. That, that, that's a question I have because really there's a two-step process here, mm -hmm. Dr. Mann. One is you have to get through the runoff, but the other is you've got to win um, in a district that has historically been unfriendly to Democrats. And so my question is how do you, how do you navigate that and what makes you think that the poll is an accurate reflection of the electorate in that district? Well, the poll was actually weighted against Democrats. It uh, had a smaller percentage of Democrats than what usually turn out. So I feel like it's a, a very strong showing, uh, showing me two points ahead. Um, we're also seeing that it is in line with the swings across the country. Um, Dr. Terrapanini last night swung her district by 14 points. Um, so if you take a, an R plus 10 district like what I'm in, and then you have a poll showing me ahead by two, that's a swing of 12. So that's very in line with the other swings. So you think political saying. environment is going to be an important aspect to this race? Absolutely. We've seen it all across the country. What's it going to take to get as well known? I mean, you know, John Carter is kind of the father of the Republican Party in Williamson County. He's yeah. been around for a long time. He's been on a lot of ballots. People know who he is. Yes. How do you even that up? 
Um, for me, it's grassroots efforts. And I'm, I'm following the examples of the people who have won in my district. Terry Cook won as the Democratic County Commissioner um, after 20 years of having no Democrats in office in that position. And she um, was outspent 17 to 1. And she did it by grassroots efforts. She created a, uh, a core of people who got out and met people and block walked. And that's what I've been doing. I've held four town halls meetings. I'm going to continue to do that throughout this race. Um, and I'm going to show people that I'm accessible um, and that I will hear them and I will listen to their point of view, even if we don't agree. You're, you are subscribed to the theory that as Austin has gotten less affordable, people with Austin values and Austin voting patterns have been pushed into places like the district you're running to serve, and so that those districts have become a little bit more receptive to well, Democrats? Well, and I think the wins that we've had have shown that. Um, we had double-digit wins in Cedar Park uh, for our city council races. Right. I worked with Rachel Jonroe on her successful city council campaign last year. I was her volunteer coordinator. She won by 50 points in Georgetown, which is considered a very red area. Right. Um, so... There's that, plus there's discontent on the Republican side. I talk to Republicans all the time who say, you're going to make me vote for a Democrat for the first time in my life. Right. John, John Carter did, <clears throat> I would say, fare poorly or po poor, more poorly than people thought in a primary that he should have won handily. I don't think he broke 65% in the Republican primary. That's correct. What about him has made him beatable beyond the political environment. Is there anything he's done or not done that you can point to? Yeah, accessibility. And um, the example that I use all the time is that I organized groups of constituents to go to his office in January and February of 2017, right after the 2016 election. And after a visit, one visit, I was sent an email saying, we're not going to make any more appointments for you. We've heard everything we need to hear from your group. Um, and he doesn't hold town hall meetings. He does teletown halls with pre-screened questions. So I, I think that I'm hearing and I keep seeing uh, and talking to people who say, we don't like that our representative in Congress is inaccessible, which is why I've been doing the work that I've been doing to make myself accessible. Well, back up a second. What did you guys tell him in that meeting? We went to talk about health care, and it was a very pleasant visit. Uh, it was a group of 14 women. And we sat for about an hour with his senior staff. He was not there. Um, and people were able to communicate their concerns about what was going to happen if the Affordable Care Act was uh, taken away from them. And it was not contentious. People just wanted to be heard. They wanted their representative in Congress to listen to them, to mm -hmm. offer them some measure of solution. And I can't understand why, after that visit, they just said, we don't want to make appointments for your group ever again. I wanted to ask about um, the DCCC mm -hmm. uh, because they, um, this wasn't among the three districts that they initially named that they were targeting this cycle. They later added it, I think, as the fourth district. Um, and uh, we've had in a number of Democratic primaries in Texas and across the country this ongoing debate about how much national influence or how much national involvement perceived or otherwise is healthy or good for the party. Um, are you comfortable with, uh, you know, their involvement or non-involvement or perceived involvement uh, in this race? And uh, did you feel that you're getting a, a fair shake in this runoff? 
I am thrilled that the DCCC has recognized that John Carter is vulnerable. That's the most important piece of their involvement in this district. But in reality, it should be up to the voters in the district. And I have people come to me all the time saying, we are really not wanting the DCCC to put their thumb on the scale here. We want to be the ones that decide who goes up against John Carter. So this Carter. is something that voters are talking to you about. Yes. Sometimes as a reporter, you ask this question and they're like, oh, just the reporters uh, want to know about no, this. No, <laughs> I get talked to about this all the time. People really are questioning why the DCCC is, is jumping in. They're glad to hear that they think the district is winnable by the DCCC, but they want to be the ones that make the decision about who goes up against him. How's your fundraising been compared to the other candidates in this race? I think during the first round of the primary, we heard a lot about um, Ms. Hager's fundraising and one of the can the gentlemen, uh, Ken um, Kent Lester, Lester who, mm -hmm. who did not make the runoff. We heard a lot about their fundraising. Yeah. Uh, how's your fundraising been? What's your cash on hand situation? Do you have enough money to be competitive in the runoff? And do, will you have enough money to be competitive in the fall? I'm very proud of what I've done with fundraising. I have not taken any PAC money. I do not court high dollar donors. I don't hold any high dollar fundraisers. So I've raised over $60,000 just organically by people who look at me, look at my candidacy, like what they hear, like what I have to say and support me. And so I have plenty of money to finish the runoff. Uh, we have a plan in place. We know exactly what we're gonna do between now and then and we have the funds to do that. And then after the primary, we will be looking at raising the funds that we need to take on John Carter. So Ms. Hager's fundraising has been better than yours at this, yes. at this point. So what does money mean in an election like this? We saw repeatedly over the course of the first round of primaries that the candidate with the most money did not necessarily finish in first. In some races, famously, the candidate with the most money didn't even make the runoff. On the other hand, you are C facing CD somebody 23, with, cough, cough. Right. You, yes. are, you are facing, and not just there, you are facing a candidate who is better funded. Yes. So, what, uh, so how do you navigate or wire around that? Well, I would say that I have not seen any data that supports the notion that dollars raised equals wins, nor dollars raised equals effectiveness as a legislator. So we see big dollars going into races. John Ossoff, for example, who raised and spent $24 million and still lost his race. And then again, in my district, which is where I'm focused, I have Terry Cook, who was outspent 17 to 1 against her Republican opponent and won. So I don't think that we should be focused on those top line numbers of dollars raised. There are other factors that go into account when candidates are on the ballot. you have any issue with your opponent in the runoff? Is there, are you running for this seat or are you running against her? I'm definitely running for this seat. Um, she's my competitor to take on John Carter. I don't like to call her my opponent. Um, John Carter is who I'm running against. He is my opponent. Uh, and I, I would love to be the person who is um, picked to go up against John Carter. But there's Carter nothing about her candidacy or the program that she's put forward that you take issue with. Um, we have differences in priorities and policies. That is true. Tell us one. Uh, one would be um, gun reform. Um, she has not come out as strongly against gun reform, and for that reason, I'm the Moms Demand Action Gun Sense strongly designated gun candidate. Right, right. 
Yes, and and I'm with the majority of Americans and actually the majority of Texans. We saw that poll come out last week that showed that the majority of Texans uh, are in favor of bans on assault-type military weapons. Uh, The majority, by far, of Americans are in favor of universal background checks. I'm on record in multiple places being in favor of these common-sense gun reforms that law officers are in favor of, um, teachers are in favor of, the American public is in favor of. So that's one big area of difference between the two of us. Any other big ones? I'm going to mention health care reform for a minute because this is something that is very important to me, having been in the medical field for as long as I have. I'm on record since 2009 advocating for a single-payer health care system. This is not something that is new to me. And there's a lot of confusion when people start talking about it, calling it socialized medicine. And that is not what we are going for or equating it to the VA system. That Those things are not the same. Um, so we have a difference in approach and priority on that. That is my number one priority. It happens to be the number one priority at on every poll that is done in every election when voters are asked what brings them to the polls. Healthcare is the number one priority, and that has always and will continue to be my number one priority. Okay. Um, I think we're going to let you escape now. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, Christine Edeman. Uh, we'll see you out there on the trail, and um, We'll send in the hook for you and bring in Alex Samuels. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Patrick, while we're swapping chairs, um, Governor Greg Abbott called a special election this week. What's the scoop on this race to replace Blake Farenthal? This is like the never-ending story of the moment. So the governor called a special election for for June 30th in in just over two months, and this is to finish Blake Farenthal's term uh, to go through early next year, basically. Right. And, uh, you know, this is a result of Farenthal's very abrupt resignation earlier this month. Uh, Abbott moved very quickly to kind of lay the uh, groundwork for him to call the special election. He uh, sought an opinion from the attorney general, uh, basically trying to get the attorney general's go-ahead to uh, have the authority to suspend state law and speed up the timeline for this special election. Uh, Abbott's justification or his explanation for that was that uh, he wanted new representation for this district as soon as possible, given that it's uh, you know was a district that was hit pretty hard by Hurricane Harvey, um, and so now we have this June 30, the special election, and the filing deadline is Friday. Why so fast? Is there a vote coming up that in the next six or seven months? That yeah, that's no, a good ar- question. Arguably, you're sending somebody to a Congress that is famous right. for not doing things. That's a good right. question. Right. So, so you can send somebody there to yeah, right. do nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that there's uh, there's more optical than substantive considerations as, as as far as that's concerned. I mean, the the other option that Abbott had was you know effectively waiting until the fall to hold the special election, and then he'd have to grapple with the yeah. political question of why would you let that seat go unfilled, or the, at least the appearance of letting that seat go unfilled for the whole summer? And so, yeah, I don't think there's a, not, you know, I'm not covering Congress every, hour to hour, day to day, but I don't think there's any, you know, hugely important Harvey aid votes uh, coming up that they need someone in that seat. But I think it's more of an optical, um, it could have been well, an optical problem. Well, while you're talking about optics, I mean, there's two, <laughs> there's two Senate seats about to open up, um, potentially. Right. Sylvia we're, we're, Garcia, Carlos Arresti. Does this foreshadow the governor calling quick elections to replace? Well, I think it actually puts I think it actually puts pressure on the governor if those two senators step down. Democrats can reasonably say, "Look, you were willing to pull the trigger on this other one. Why not pull the trigger on these?" I want to come back though to one interesting. I don't know that this. I'm not even going to presume that this is even on the governor's mind. But one interesting aspect of this, (laughs) I would never presume. Um, The Republican who wins the special election 
is, you know, I think the likelihood is that the same person who wins the special will end up being the runoff. We'll, we'll, we'll know by then, will we not? The election's on the 30th, right? Correct. So we're going to have a runoff winner. On May 22nd. May 22nd. Right. I'm going to just go ahead and assert that the winner on May 22nd is also likely to be the winner on June. That's a different turnout. Well, but hold on. Here we go. So let me just go with this. Right. So what you end up with is basically a candidate running in the fall against the Democrats as an incumbent. Right. And so having a special election allows for a Republican, theoretically, to be the incumbent running as opposed to simply a candidate. Right. And, that, and there's a baked-in advantage. Reelect old so-and-so. Potentially right. to that. Who's, who are the candidates? So right now, uh, we have a Democratic runoff underway and a Republican runoff underway in the current race for the full term in, beginning in the regular next race. year. Right. Okay. And three of those four candidates, one of the Democrats and, and both Republicans, have confirmed that, yes, they're also running in the special election. Why would the other Democrat not run in the special? He just didn't get back to us. Any, any wild so cards? He, yeah, he hasn't said he's not going to run. Any wild cards? Any of the March losers come back for another bite? Yeah, it's hard to tell at this point. I mean, honestly, we're just starting to kind of reach out to some folks in the district and see if there could be some wild cards. One thing that we should mention, too, is that uh, there's likely going to be a runoff, or I think it's fair to say there's going to be a runoff from this special election. And that's right. in September, right? And that would likely be, there's not a set date yet. There are some statutory kind of considerations Usually there. But 11 or 12 weeks out. Likely yeah. be right. in September. And so, uh, of course, that's if, if no candidate gets 50% or more of the vote, you're going to have at least three candidates running. Um, I imagine you may have some third-party candidates. And so I think, a, you know, that's kind of a recipe. Of course, for why would you run in the special if you're not running already as one of the candidates still you know, in this. this happens from time to time. Just, just to be you know, in Congress for like five seconds? Just, I was there. You know, I got to, I got to ride the... You know, got because the if this had been a special without Congress, regard right? to a fall election, somebody like Lil Solomon, Solomon Ortiz Jr., who served right. in the legislature and who... Lil, Lil Solly. Lil yeah. Solly. <laughs> right. Well, because, you know, you go in there with name ID in a short race, right? Short right, time right. frame, people know you. But, of course, as we've reported over the last couple of weeks, it seems like multiple times, that district is so different now and the way that it's been drawn makes right. it so difficult for a Democrat to win. Right. But you could imagine even a Democrat with high name ID taking a pass on that race. Right. Uh, before we get to our next topic, I'd like to quickly thank another TribCast sponsor, the Texas State Technical College. TSTC offers money-back guarantees to students who earn degrees in high-paying technologies but don't find jobs within six months of graduation. You were talking about the district being so different in Blake Farenthold's district. Redistricting has been a big topic this week. Uh, the Texas case finally went to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's weird because, you know, you've got these maps that were originally drawn in 2011. They were redrawn by the courts and then... Um, I guess, affirmed by the legislature in 2013 and 14, and they're still being contested in court. We've held three elections under these maps. We're about to hold a fourth election under these maps. The question in front of the Supreme Court is less about the maps than about the procedure and jurisdiction and legal questions. Right. Um, and there's no wayback machine. You can't go back and undo legislation passed by a legislature right, elected is, under those maps. And those have been consequential legislatures, all three of them. Uh, right. I mean, what do you make of this situation? I mean, it's easy to get lost in all the sticks and stones of the, of the redistricting, this and that. But, you know, from a larger standpoint, what are we doing here? Well, what's, what I think is, is the best analysis here was done by some schmageggy named Ross Ramsey on our website. That's the nicest thing you've ever called me. Right, uh, who overnight uh, posted a column that said basically regardless of the outcome of the Supreme Court case in play right now, it doesn't make a difference because the Republicans have effectively won redistricting. They got to exist to lead, to legislate, to appropriate under maps and under legislatures that 
were in place for the last number of years, regardless of what the outcome of this uh, case is. So right. in that respect, it's like if you kill somebody, you can't unkill them. There's no King's X here. He did. Yeah. And so in this instance, he did. Is there something, I mean, you know, this is a random question, but is there something you've heard or seen that uh, tells you there might be some idea of redistricting reform? Maybe this could happen quicker. I mean, it's not new that the, the litigation's people, gone this long. You know, in, in the 90s, we did a map in 91. It wasn't settled until 96. All the people who 2000s. beat their chests and talk about how we have to take the politics out of redistricting, I'm reminded of what Kel right. Seliger, the senator for Amarillo, said when he was the chairman of redistricting. He said to, taking the politics out of redistricting is like taking the calories out of fried chicken. You cannot do it. No matter the mechanism you put in place to do it, you go to this technocratic commission or you decide you're going to use a computer program or whatever else, at the end of the day, there's something inherently political about this. Yeah. I've seen a lot of candidates this cycle, Democratic candidates, particularly campaign on redistricting reform or trying to make it kind of a central issue. Well, the, the victims of the current maps <laughs> want to reform the system exactly. by which those maps were drawn. How about that? Uh, right. You know, Beto O'Rourke is talking a lot about it in his right. U.S. Senate campaign. Um, but that's the extent of it. The, it hasn't helped the Democrats at the legislative level and at the congressional level. I mean, they can certainly blame, and I would blame, honestly, the profoundly non-competitive nature of our elections, in part on the fact that the maps have been drawn in a way right. to depress turnout and to give people a reason to think that their civic participation doesn't matter. At the statewide level, though, the Democrats have been no place for more than 20 years. That's on them. Right. No map causes no Democrat to win statewide elections since 1994. Well, so to I, some I, degree, you can, push, you can push off some of your problems and the one-party nature of the state onto redistricting, but you can't push all of them off. I, I could make an argument, you know, the Democrats might make, that if you don't have local races and you don't have things to stir people up, then you're not going to get the turnout you would get even for a statewide race. Really, it starts with good candidates. Right. It doesn't right. start with maps. So now we get to go to and, our— and, and speaking of things that would be better if everybody smoked pot— <laughs> Maybe. Right. And our re resident podcaster is standing by here. Um, reminder to Facebook viewers to post your questions in the comments, and we'll try to get to them during this. Alex, you, as I said, have been our resident podcaster, um, and you're also on the barbecue circus. So, so tell us what's going on in the non-reality altering world of cannabinoid oils. Sure. So we had a documentary come out early this week. We followed two Texas families, uh, both starting the process of using CBD oil, which was legalized in 2015 under the Compassionate Use Act. What's weird is that even though the law was passed in 2015, the oil didn't start being sold in Texas until January of this year. So these families are literally just now starting the process. And so they're telling us of several you know, barriers they face to getting the medicine. You know, you need two doctor's approval to get this, you have to have tried two seizure medications and have failed. Mm -hmm. um, there was some issue with the cost of the medicine. And, you know, since this is so new, doctors are still trying to find uh, the right dosage to give to these people and these families. So we followed them and saw their story. Um, at the end, I mean, it's hard to say whether or not there's a happy ending for these families, but both did uh, say that there was either a downward trend in the number of seizures or that, uh, they were having seizures for under five minutes, so it's kind of hard so to So what's the next wave here? I mean, you know, there's been some conversation in the medical community about, you know, these are kind of uncontrolled drugs that you don't control dosages and strengths of all of these kinds of things. Uh, there's a bunch of, you know, um, either paranoia or hope, depending on which side you're on, that this will lead to something other than just medical use of, you know, non-psychotic or whatever they call it, um, mm -hmm. you know. Just legalization or... Dysfunctional like, marijuana, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, so what's the next step? Um, I know I talked to State Representative Eddie Lucio III, and he was one of the authors of 
a bill passed during last year's legislative session that would have expanded the Compassionate Use Act, and it would have expanded which part of the marijuana plants used to make the oil, and then also what, um, I guess, illnesses you can have to qualify for the medicine. Because right now you have to have intractable epilepsy, and he wanted to expand it to autism, PTSD, terminal cancer. So he did say that he has plans to refile that next year. And Jason Isaac, who's one of the authors, he's uh, leaving the legislature, but he's also... He was also an author. The, the fact is, Alex, when this passed a couple sessions ago, there was a lot of talk about how now don't get any crazy ideas about right. Texas this going full-on embrace right. of marijuana. This is only one little thing. Mm -hmm. This is not gateway legislation, right? We're just going to keep this, you know, very modest. Yeah. There's been no indication at the legislature or especially in the governor's office that there's any more enthusiasm to move toward criminalization, decriminalization, or God forbid legalization, right? Yes, that's... Correct. Abbott has previously said that he's not going to sign anything right. that would legalize I mean, marijuana he, he in Texas. I mean, he actually, a little throwback here, he, after the 2015 session, this is the law that he held a signing event for. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't hold a signing event for every bill. I always thought that was fascinating at the time, but he made very clear at the time that, yes, I'm making a show of signing this bill, but we're not going any, yeah. any farther. <laughs> the, 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 the conversation on this around the country is moving to the point that in a lot of statewide races, I mean, not in states like Texas, but, you know, a lot of other places, there is a more open conversation by candidates about the possibility of legalization or some kind of restrictions being loosened or right. sentencing reform or whatever. And honestly, within the realm of both Republican and Democratic criminal justice policy uh, uh, discussions, there's more agreement than disagreement around the possibility of there being some, you know, recategorizing of this group of Well, there was that moment a couple of offenses. years ago when Rick Perry was still governor that he said, you know, why are we throwing people into prison for life for, you know, one or two marijuana cigarettes? You know, right. which was a change of position, you know, sort of like a, you're moving the flag for the Well, the I wonder if the same Freedom time. Caucus members of the Texas House who said when our colleague Shannon Najmabadi wrote a story about, um, you know, uh, uh, we need to... It was a, a, a story related to we shouldn't sanction people for things that are not violent offenses. Right. You know, there was there's a lot of, you know, if, if, you, if you're not violent, we shouldn't necessarily put you right. in, in prison. Should there be a conversation as it gets to uh, uh, drug policy reform? Will there be conservatives who will join liberals in thinking that this is something from a legislative standpoint that we need to relook at? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a popular topic right now. Well, there may, there may be slope? votes I mean, out there. You know, there may be votes out there. You know, there's some talk that in, in the 2020 presidential uh, a primary, Democratic primary, right. that this is going to be a feature of a lot of Democratic presidential campaigns. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be something? You know, our surveys have been moving. The University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll over time, we ask a four-part question on this that, you know, um, when should marijuana be legal? And, it, you know, it's um, never medical use only, small amounts for personal use, or large amounts right this minute at any time. Choice, right? right, and, and <laughs> yeah. that's been moving. I mean, you know, when we first started doing that, the two most weighted areas in that were never and medical only, and now the two most weighted areas are medical only and small amounts for personal use. And so um, is this a slippery slope that some Republicans and some conservatives fear? Or I, I think so, that this might eventually lead to some sort of legalization or that there'll be a push for legalization, which is why um, even the Republicans who did sign on to either the Compassionate Use Act or the bill to expand it, they've right. said, you know, we don't support legalization. This is where we want to kind of draw the line. I think we should have a, a Tribcast in which all the people on the Tribcast are high one week and see how that goes. <laughs> that and in particular... Be, that would be the first Tribcast where we've done that. In it? particular, yeah. I think actually Svitek 
<laughs> Speed tech high would be amazing on this trip cast. I think it's a good time to read this paragraph. That's <laughs> okay, all the time we have. Uh, if you like listening to the trip cast, what happens week, when Emily is gone for a day? Guess what? We've got something new for you an audio news brief that shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. Learn more about that at trib.it slash the brief podcast. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to Earth Day ATX 2018, TASBO, and Texas State Technical College, our sponsors this week, on behalf of Evan, Patrick, Alex, Christine, and our producers, Justin and Regina. This is Ross. Thanks for listening. Texas Bada bing, bada boom.